Now, if you remember last week, Pastor Kevin Johnson shared with us, and he taught from God's Word, and we were going through the life of John the Baptist. So if you remember, we did this by observing all four gospel accounts. We were Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John looking at John the Baptist. And if you remember, John was a man who took very seriously his message and his calling that God had for him. And something that stood out to me last week that was said about John was that John did not play around or candy coat the message that he was called to share by God to the people. He taught a message of repentance, the people to turn to the Lord, and that judgment was coming if people do not repent and turn from their sins. The Messiah was coming. Now, I bring this to you because this is what we're going to be talking about today. Just like John took his calling very seriously, and as he was very watchful in his calling, this is what we're going to be talking about today and how it relates to us. How we're called to be serious in our faith, watchful in our faith, and how we're called to live as Christians in the world around us today. So turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 7 today. But before we read the verses, before we get into this, let's go ahead again and commit this time to the Lord and pray for God's Spirit to just lead us as we read His Word. God, we just thank you so much, Lord, for your holy Word. God, it's truly amazing to think about. Lord, you didn't need to give us your Word, but you did. And Lord, from it we can learn wisdom. We can learn how to know you more. Learn your ways, God. And so we pray you teach us. Lord, this afternoon as we open your word, that your spirit would speak to each one of our hearts, God. That your name would be glorified and that you would just draw us closer to you in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we get into the verses, i got to give you the context of this letter. Peter's writing a series of two letters, First and Second Peter. And he's writing this, believed around 60 to 65 A.D., which would place this nearly 30 years after Jesus was crucified and after he rose again from the dead. So at this point, Peter's very well-seasoned in ministry. He has over 30 years of experience, right? He's been doing this for a long time. Now, it's believed around this time, if you study history and you study early church history, the world was still under the dominion of the Roman Empire. And at this point, it was believed that Nero was the emperor of Rome. And if you study church history, you know that Nero probably pops a light bulb in your head because he was known as one of the worst leaders in Rome. And under his reign, many Christians were persecuted and tortured and even killed in very gruesome manners. There's a great persecution going on. It's under Nero's reign, it's believed that the Apostle Paul was killed and that even Peter was killed nearly a year or a year and a half after he wrote this letter. Now, Peter wrote this letter to the church that was scattered abroad. The church was scattered and all over the place because of the persecution going on. They were all over the board. And Peter was writing this to the church spread out throughout the land to encourage them as they're going through this time of persecution, to point them to the hope that they have in Jesus and that this persecution will not last forever and the hope that they have in Christ can't be taken from them. So we're going to pick it up in verse 7 of chapter 4. At this point, Peter had went through this letter, and he had encouraged the church of their inheritance and their hope in Christ. He has shared with them how they're called to live with the governing authorities around them, and now how they're called to live enduring this persecution. So if you have your Bibles, let's take a look at verse 7. It says, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Now, Peter starts off with an interesting statement. He says the end of all things is at hand. And when I read this, I had to think, what is he talking about? The end of what? I'm sure Peter knew his death was imminent. Was he referring to the end of his life? 
Was he referring to the end of the world? When he says the end of all things, what is he referring to? Now, if you study through the church, a common theme that was going on with the church was they believed Jesus was coming back at any given day. They anticipated the return of Jesus Christ. They anticipated the end. And so they were always living with constant readiness and constant expectation that, hey, Jesus could come back today. Let's be ready. And going through this time, they saw this persecution. They were like, it's got to be the end. Right? It's fascinating. But the early church, they lived in a manner that they were ready for the return of Jesus. And as we're Calvary Chapel, if you ever listen to Chuck Smith, it's interesting. You listen to his sermons from the 80s. He says about every single sermon, he thought the end of the world was going to happen in the 80s. He thought Jesus was coming back because of how crazy things were in the 80s. And here we are 40 years later, right? Now, these men weren't predicting when Jesus was coming back. They weren't predicting the end times. But what they were doing was living in an expectation and a readiness that if Jesus came back today, we're going to be ready. We're going to be ready as a church, and we're going to be ready as individual believers, And I believe this is the same heart and the same attitude that Peter is bringing to this church. The end of things is at hand. So what does he tell them to do? He says, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Now, in a lot of translations, people will read this and say that Peter is saying you've got to be serious in your prayers and you've got to be watchful in your prayers. That's not true. That's not what the original context of this statement is. Peter is saying, be serious in your faith and be watchful in your prayers. So we're going to break these down before we move on to any more verses, because this is very important, and it really sets the precedent for the verses we're studying. So first things first, Peter said you need to be serious in your faith. The Greek word for the word serious is a word called sophroneo, and it means to be sober. It means to be sober-minded. It means to have self-control. Now, you all know sober refers to being clean from the influence of alcohol, right? You're not... You're not polluted by alcohol. You're sober. You're thinking straight. You're not caught off guard. In the same fashion, to be sober-minded means you're not influenced by the things of this world. You're not being distracted, but your eyes and your mindset is fixed on Jesus Christ. In a biblical sense, this is what it means to be sober-minded. And Peter is saying, now is the time to be serious in your faith. Now is the time to be sober-minded and to not be under the control and the influence of the things going on around you in the world right now. Because if you're going to endure the hard times that are coming, you need to get your heart and your faith right with Jesus now. Be sober-minded. Don't be playing around and don't be polluted by the things of this world. I like the term sober-minded because it's very fascinating the way the enemy attacks us. He always goes for our thoughts, doesn't he? He tries to instill thoughts of lies into our mind, to discourage us. Thoughts to make us fear, to question God. Thoughts that tempt us to sin and to give heed to our flesh. And this is why the Bible commands many times, 2 Corinthians 10.5, you don't have to turn there. It says that we need to take every thought captive. We need to bring it into subjection to the obedience of Christ. We need to put on the helmet of salvation. We need to guard our minds from the lies of the enemy. This is what it means to be serious in your faith, to be sober-minded, to lay aside the distractions, to lay aside, I'll get right with Jesus tomorrow and get right with Jesus now. This is how Peter starts off this section before he even talks about the coming persecution, before he even talks about what the church is going through right now, he says first, be serious in your faith. Be serious in your faith. We don't serve a God who deserves 50%. We don't serve a God who deserves 99%. He deserves 100% of us because he gave all of himself for us. What else does Peter say? He says, be watchful in your prayers. 
I, I love this, that he would say this, and the way he would word this. Be watchful in your prayers. The word watchful, again, this is why it's important, and sometimes it's, it's really interesting when you study, right? What are these words? What was the original translation of these words? Because many times when we interpret them into our modern English language, it kind of loses the meaning, kind of loses the, the, the deepness of what the original author was saying. The word watchful translates to mean temperate, right? They're kind of two different things, watchful and temperate, but this is what the original word meant. And if you're familiar with being temperate, to be temperate means you're self-restraining. You're keeping yourself from the cravings that you have in your heart. You're not giving in to those things. You're a temperate person, right? It's another way of saying you're, you have self-control. You're not giving in to the passions of your heart. This is why we say many times God doesn't call us to an emotional experience with him. He calls us to a relationship with him. Why? Because our emotions can't be trusted. The Bible says your heart's desperately wicked above all things. This is why God calls us to a personal relationship with him each and every day. But what does it mean to be temperate in prayer? That's an interesting, that's an interesting command. But before I ask you if you're being temperate in your prayer, I've got to ask this question. Do you even have a prayer life? How is your prayer life? Do you have a healthy prayer life? I know for me, I struggle with this. It's easy to find time to read the Word. It's easy to fellowship. What's hard is having a constant prayer life with the Lord. And it's so important. That's a sign of a healthy Christian. Prayer is a sign of a healthy church. That's why we do prayer requests. That's why we pray for each other, because it's so important. But to be temperate in prayer means that you're not giving in to the passions of your flesh when you're in prayer. Your mind is set. You know what you're bringing to the Lord. A lot of people say there's no wrong way to pray, and I'm not going to say that's incorrect. But I'll say this. Jesus sets for us a model of how to pray, and he does that because we needed it. As many times it's easy to take what we feel in our flesh and what we want, and we take that to God in prayer, and we ignore the way we should be praying. What about your enemies? How about those who persecute you? How are you praying for them? I'll share a quick story, and then we'll move on to the next verses. When I was in Myanmar, and after everything happened in the country, a good brother came to me and he said, Hey, I'm really struggling with loving my enemies and the people who've wronged us. And I said to him, I said, You know, I know it's very difficult, and it might even sound cliche for me to tell you this, but you need to pray for them. And he said, You're right. I need to pray. Can we pray right now? I was like, Absolutely. So he starts praying. And he's like, Lord, I just pray for my enemies that you would kill them all, Lord, that you would strike them down. Lord, that you would just get rid of them and their families. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is what it means to not be temperate in prayer, right? You take what you want and all the emotions that you're feeling and all the passion you're feeling and you bring it before God and you're not praying in your right mind. This is what Peter means when he says you need to be temperate. We need to pray for God's mercy and his grace on our enemies. We need to pray for God's forgiveness on those who've wronged us. We need to be praying for revival. We need to be praying for each other as the church because we need to come together as one body and one family in Christ. And this is what Peter means when he says, be watchful, be temperate in your prayer life. Let's go on. Let's continue. We'll look at verses 8 through 10. He said, and above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received the gift, minister to it to one another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Paul now continues to describe what a serious and a watchful life for the Lord looks like as it relates to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice the context. 
He's saying you need to love each other within the church. Why does he say this? Because many times it's very hard to love each other in the church. I share it in youth group a lot. I kind of get some weird looks sometimes when I say it, but I say, hey, Christians are the hardest people to love sometimes, right? Our fellow brothers and sisters. And it's true because we have differing opinions. We have different denominations, right? And we want to be correct, and we think we're a competition with each other. And Peter is saying, no, that is not how you're called to live and act as the church. You're one body in Christ. This was the Apostle Paul's whole ministry in life, right? He brought the gospel to the Gentiles, and the Jews and the Gentiles hated each other, right? The Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans were half Gentile, half Jew. And read it through the gospels. It's funny because the Jewish people would say to Jesus, you're, you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed. They would relate being a Samaritan to being a demon-possessed person because that's how much they hated each other. And Paul was sharing with them, hey, the gospel message is salvation has come to all people whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, and you need to live and love each other as one family. And the same is true for us today, and this is what Peter's saying. You have to love each other. The way that Peter describes this love, he says you need to have agape for each other. And if you're familiar with the different Greek words for love, agape is the highest form of love you can have for a person. It's a love that you literally can't love someone with unless God gives it to you. We're just not capable, right? I heard someone had said that love is what brings us together. It's not Christ, it's love. And that's so not true. Because we can't love each other without Jesus. We can't have this highest form of love unless Jesus gives it to us. Right? Only the Lord can do this. If you notice, Peter mentions love will cover a multitude of sins. This is a reference to Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, where it says, if I turn there, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. And I believe Peter, he wrote this and quoted this proverb because it reminds us that Jesus loves us despite all of our sins. Despite all of the things that we did to him. All of the times we disobeyed him and transgressed his word. And all the times that we just stabbed him in the back, so to speak. He still loves us. And because that kind of love God gives us, we need to give that love to each other as the church. It's so important. And I'll share one more verse, and I don't have it on the screen. I actually read it this morning, and I was like, that's a great verse. But in John chapter 13, after Jesus had washed his disciples' feet, he said, I've done this for you as an example. He said, for this is how the world will know that you're my disciples, by your love for one another. This is how the world's going to know that we follow Jesus, the way we love each other as the church. We're not at competition with each other. Right? We're not trying to outdo each other. We're not trying to take congregants from other churches and bring them here and vice versa. No, we need to come together as one body and share the gospel with the lost and encourage each other as the church to be good stewards of the grace of God, as Peter would say in verse 10. Be good stewards of the manifold grace of God to show that same grace and love to each other that Christ has shown us. Let's go ahead and look at verse 11. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is a great verse. I love this verse. It says here that we're to speak, when we speak, we're to speak the oracles of God. Now, this is one con using the New King James Version. You get a word like oracles, right? I don't know how many of you in here use the word oracles in your daily vocabulary. I would assume no one. But the word oracle, it means to receive an utterance or a word from the Lord. 
So when Peter says, if anyone speaks, let him speak the word of God. Now, I want you to notice, Peter doesn't say whenever someone preaches or whenever someone teaches, let them speak the word of God. He says, when you speak, period. So in other words, every single thing that comes out of our mouth should be affected by the word of God. Every single thing that comes out of our mouths. We're called in the Bible ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador goes to a foreign nation, not his own, and he speaks on behalf of his country. So if an ambassador goes to a foreign nation and he starts bad-mouthing the leader of that country, he just spoke for his entire nation. In the same manner, we're representing Christ by the words that we speak. And I can tell you right now, this is difficult, and I struggle with it. Right? I, I, if I told you that I don't struggle with this, and all of you need to work on how you say I would be the biggest hypocrite on the planet. I struggle with this. Right? Sometimes I'll be saying things, and as I'm saying it, I feel the Spirit convicting me. And I'm like, did I really just say that? Make jokes. Oh, I cannot believe I just made that joke. Right? Is the gospel coming out of our mouths? Can people see Jesus in our words? Can they hear Jesus in our words? This is why it's a great idea, I believe, to read Proverbs each day. I read a proverb every day, and in it it's just so great because you get so much practical wisdom. And I don't know about you, but I know daily I need to be reminded not to act stupid. I need this reminder every single day. And in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 3, Solomon said, He who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. And I'll tell you what, I needed to hear that yesterday. Because there were many opportunities yesterday I wanted to open this up in response to people and praise God for his grace and the way he speaks through his word. Now, before we move on, I, I want to keep going on this for a minute because it's very important we continue this about our mouth. If you study God's word, you, you see a great emphasis on our mouth and our tongue and the damage that it can do, the good things it can do, right? With, with our mouth, we can share the gospel. We can encourage each other as the church. But with our mouth, we can also tear down each other. We can also gossip and slander and really just ultimately destroy lives with the words that we speak. So let me ask you, is Christ being exalted in your words, and is the church being edified with what you say? What you say about each other? What you say about each other behind closed doors that no one hears, but only God hears? Think about it. Turn to Matthew chapter 12 real quick. It's a very important couple verses here. We'll do 36 and 37 of Matthew chapter 12. I think these are uh, verses people forget are in the Bible. And if they know they're in the Bible, I think a lot of people ignore these verses. Matthew chapter 12. If you look at verses 36 through 37, Jesus said, But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. It's a great reminder for us. Let's continue. In verse 11, Peter continues and says, If anyone ministers, they're to do it according to the gifting that God has given them to do. Here's the great thing about the body of Christ. God has given each one of us roles, abilities, and skills to use within his body, and no one is of less importance than the other. We need each other as the body. And this is why corporate worship and fellowship is so important, right? That we're actively using these gifts, and we're using them to bring glory to God and to encourage one another. Now is not the time, as Peter was reminding this church, now is not the time to be lazy in your giftings, in your callings for the Lord. Now is the time to do what God is calling you to do to be faithful to the calling that God has for your life. Now is not the time to make excuses and to roll on our backs as the church. And I don't know about you, but over the past two years, I've been horrified by the church. And I don't sit and say, oh, the church is so bad. No, I'm part of the church. Right? I'm not judging the church. I'm part of it. 
For two years, the world has said to the church all over the world, close your doors, don't meet, don't worship, and don't fellowship. And the church said, okay, this is not the time to roll on our backs and disobey and forsake the calling that God has for us. Now is the time to minister. Now is the time to honor Jesus Christ with our callings, with our giftings, and to be the church that God instructed us to be. Now is the time to be obedient and to be faithful and to use the giftings that God has given us to bring glory and honor to his name, to go out there and share the gospel with the lost. Why? Because you can see through the news every single day, we're getting closer and closer and the world is not getting any better. But there's one thing that's true right now, is the harvest is plentiful out there. People are starving. They are searching for the gospel. But the Bible says, how will they hear without a teacher? How will they hear unless someone goes? This is what we're called to do. Let's continue verse 12. It says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. So again, we can draw many applications from God's word, but at the end of the day, there's one interpretation, and we want to make sure we don't ignore the context. What Peter is referring to is the coming persecution that this, the whole church was about to experience and already was experiencing under Emperor Nero in the Roman Empire. And again, it's very interesting if you ever study church history, just how brutal this time was for the church. But what does Peter say to the church? He says, you're going to go through a fiery trial. It's an interesting statement, a fiery trial. In the Greek language, this phrase, fiery trial, refers to a sword, right? Going through fire and becoming stronger. It refers to being refined, not destroyed, but refined. This is how Peter described the persecution the church was going through. The struggles and the hardships the church was going through, he called a refining time, right? A fiery trial. Something that you're going to have to go through. There's going to be some burning, but you're ultimately going to be made stronger through this. And if there's one thing that's true, this is what persecution does for the church. It grows it. It makes it stronger. If you study throughout the church, persecution is what makes the church stronger. It certainly is a tool that makes the church stronger, and the church was about to go through it. But what Peter said was, hey, don't let it surprise you when you go through this. Don't let it catch you off guard. And he said, don't think it's strange. Now, I love this because many people today, they don't have this understanding of the scripture where Peter would say, don't, don't think it's strange when you go through a trial or tribulation. There's a lot of false teaching out there, and a lot of false teachers will say, you're not going to go through trials as Christians. You're not going to have hard times. You're not going to get sick. You're not going to be persecuted. And that's just not true. Jesus promised time and time again, you're going to have trials. You're going to have tribulations. You're going to have persecutions. Jesus said a teacher is not above his master. If they called me demon-possessed, what are they going to call you? If they hated me, they're going to hate you. He said, but don't worry, they hated me first, right? Jesus never said that our lives were going to be perfect because this earth's not our home. It's a fallen world we live in. And the trials around us shouldn't catch us off guard. Now, I'll just share from firsthand, I've been caught off guard by the way the world is going right now. I have been caught off guard severely by reading the news, by seeing what's going on in my own country, by seeing what's going on throughout the world. And I just get discouraged. I've been caught off guard. And what does Peter say? Don't let these things surprise you. Don't let these things surprise you. Your hope's not in these things. Your hope's not in the world going back to normal. It's not in the world going back to decency and comfortability, right? Your hope is in what Jesus has done for you. And this is what Peter was reminding this church. Let's look at verse 13. He says, But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. 
What a verse, right? This is how you know God wrote this. Because it's not in man's capabilities to write something like this. Yes, you're about to be tortured, killed, imprisoned, but hey, have joy. This is a crazy statement, but why does he make this? Why would Peter say this knowing what the church is about to go through? Peter tells us. He said, because you're going to be able to suffer for your king. You're going to be able to show how much you love your king. And you're going to endure all these things because of your love for Jesus. And what a privilege and an honor it is to show the Lord how much you love him. And to show the world how firm your faith is in Christ, that you're never going to forsake him because he has never forsaken you. When we read these things, we're not enduring this, thank God, right now, right? There are brothers and sisters throughout the world who are, but currently right now we're not. But we can ask ourselves, man, would I be willing to lay down my life for my king? Notice the context. Peter starts talking about this suffering and dying and all of this tribulation after he's already said, get serious in your faith, get watchful in your prayers, and love each other as a church. There's a sequence to this. Because if you can't live for Jesus while you're not suffering, you're not going to be able to suffer for Jesus. How are you going to be faithful in suffering if you can't be faithful to God now? People say it all the time, I'll die for Jesus, but they won't live for him. How will you die for someone you won't live for, right? It's something to think about. Peter says you're going to be rewarded for your trials that you face on this, on this earth, and you need to count it all joy. So let me ask you, you know, you're, again, you're not being persecuted. I don't think anyone's knocked on our door this week and said, hey, if you believe in Jesus, I'm going to kill you, right? I'm sure that hasn't happened to us this week. Thank the Lord. But what about the trials in your own life? What about the trials in your own life, the tribulations that you're going through right now personally? Maybe it's family issues. Maybe it's school. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's health. These trials, how do you respond to them? How are you responding to these trials? Are you counting it all joy, putting your trust in the Lord that through these times that God is going to use it? Or are you discouraged? Don't be fooled. Satan will use these trials in our lives to take our eyes off Christ. And when we take our eyes off Christ in trials, it sets us in a very dangerous spot, doesn't it? Because that's when we're open prey for the devil to come into our hearts and to our minds and to sow his lies and his discouragement. Does God really love you? Why would God allow this to happen to you? You're his child. I thought he loved you. Why would God let you be sick? Why would God allow this to happen in your work? And then you start to question God. Lord, why? Right? It's a dangerous spot to be in. This is why Peter said, count it all joy. Remember, your hope's not in these things. Your hope's in Jesus Christ. And sickness can't take that hope from you, right? Imprisonment can't take that hope from you. Death can't take that hope from you. Your hope in Jesus has been secured when Jesus completed his work on the cross. So how are you reacting and how are you responding to what's going on around you? How about the world situation right now? Are you getting caught up in politics? Are you getting caught up in everything going on in this world that you have taken your eyes out of the word of God? I just, I had to stop watching the news. I just can't do it anymore. It's just not, it does not put me in a healthy spot spiritually. We got to be careful that our eyes aren't being taken off this, God's word, and being put on other things. It's so important. Let's continue verses 14 through 16. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Peter tells us, he echoes what Jesus spoke on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He said, when you're persecuted, you're going to be blessed. God is going to reward you for what you endure on this earth. And that should encourage each one of our hearts, right? This earth is not the kingdom of God. This is not heaven, (laughs) 
Thank God. Our hope, our inheritance is to come in heaven with Jesus. This earth is a temporary place. Our citizenship's not here. It's in heaven. And we're going to be blessed by God when we stand before him. But with this encouragement that Peter gives to the church, he also gives them a warning. In verse 15, he said, But don't let people persecute you because you deserve it. Look at that. He says, Don't suffer because you're a thief or a murderer or an evildoer. And again, I had asked myself, Why did Peter even put this in? It's kind of out of the blue, right? It's kind of random. He's talking about suffering for Christ, and he says, but don't be a thief or a murderer. Where did that come from? Peter was addressing a very common problem within the early church, and it's a problem that exists today. People take God's grace, and they try to cheat it, and they try to think that they can live however they want because God is gracious, and God will forgive them. It's a dangerous attitude to have. I can do this. God will forgive me. I'll get right with the Lord later. Right? A little compromise leads to another compromise, which eventually leads to a big compromise. All right, it's always a slow, slow spiral into something very big. And this is what Peter is referring to. This is a very common false teaching today, that you can take God's grace and live however you want. It's not true. We never have a right to live however we want. We have to live according to the way of the Lord, the way that God tells us to live. Paul talks about this in Romans 5 and 6. You can turn to it later, right? He says at the end of chapter 5, where our sin abounded, God's grace abounded much more. Praise the Lord. Then you read 6.1, and he says, so should we continue in sin that his grace may abound? And he says, God forbid. No, certainly not. Absolutely not. We need to live like Jesus. And this is what Peter was reminding us in the church back then. Let's continue here. We'll look at verses 17 through 18. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first... What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Paul makes an interesting statement here. He says the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? Now, it's highly believed what Peter was referring to in the context was that the coming persecution was seen and perceived as a judgment of God. Right? This is how the church was perceiving it. Like God's judgment's coming on us, but he's going to refine us through this. We don't know for sure. This is what it's commonly believed in the context. But from what I see, there's two great reminders for us here in verses 17 and 18. I see two great reminders. Number one, we as Christians are not exempt from standing before God in judgment. Just because we're Christians, we will still face God in judgment. This doesn't change, right? It's not that we're going to be raptured or we're going to be dying, go to heaven, and everything's going to be great. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. We've got our glorified bodies. That's it. It's a wrap. First, we're going to face judgment. I'm not saying we're going to lose our salvation, but what I am saying is we will face Christ for the way that we have lived our lives. If you turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, verse 10, Paul said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. All means all. All must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It doesn't just refer to non-believers. It refers to all of us. We will face Christ, and we will stand in judgment for the Lord. Something that the early church had, and we see it with just Peter's attitude, thinking that Christ was coming back with that anticipation, there was a fear of God. And unfortunately, the church today is losing the fear of God. They're losing the respect and the reverence and the fear of who God is. We've never been given a right to lose the fear of God. He is still to be feared and to be held in honor by each one of us. 
And here's another thing that's very important to remember as Christians. We're doubly accountable before God for the way we live because we have the knowledge of the truth. We know how we're called to live. We know how we're not called to live. And we're going to be doubly accountable for the way that we live, by the words that we say, by the actions we perform. For the way that we share God's word, we're going to be responsible for these things. Again, the fear of God needs to be very present and real in each one of our hearts. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, it's not on the screen, but this verse applies to us as it applies to all people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I pray when we read that, it does bring fear to our hearts because God is to be feared and to be held in reverence. Now, the second point I see in verses 17 and 18, God is the judge. If you notice, Peter said, listen, you're going through judgment now, but know this, those who are doing these things to you are going to face God's judgment as well. God is the judge. It's very easy for us to hate those who wrong us, those who persecute us. It's very easy to want to play judge, jury, and executioner in our lives, right? It's in our human nature. Our default is to wrong people back who have wronged us or to wish ill on people or, again, as I shared earlier, to pray against people. But we're never have an excuse to live and act contrary to the way God has called us to live. God is our judge. He will give to each man what he deserves. He, he sees. He knows, right? He knows everything going on. He knows what the wicked are getting away with. They know what these, these people are doing throughout the world. And our job is to trust God, love him, and watch this, love them. Love them. Pray for them. Pray that God would save them and he'd have mercy on them. He sees. He knows. It's easy to get discouraged and say, how do these people get away with these things? Because this is a fallen world we live in, and it's not our home. So don't be surprised when, again, go back to verse 12. Peter said, don't be surprised. Don't count it this strange thing when these things happen to you. But trust God who's faithful, and trust God who's the judge of all. Jesus is our example for this. If you turn over a page to 1 Peter 2.23, we see how Jesus responded to those who persecuted him said, who, when Christ was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. This is how we're called to live. Jesus is our example. He sets the standard, and we have no excuse to not live like him. So look at our last verse, verse 19 of 1 Peter chapter 4. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. We are told in this last verse, and I love how um, this kind of just ends the chapter in this way. This, it says, therefore, commit your souls to the Lord. Now, for the phrase, commit yourself, right, or commit your souls in the Greek, this phrase is called paratathemai, and it means to deposit or to entrust something. It would refer to depositing money into a bank, entrusting your money to that bank or that banker, right? When you give your money to a bank, you're virtually trusting them, to take what is yours and to preserve it, right? And in the same sense, this is how we're called to commit our lives to the Lord. To give our lives to the Lord, to give it to him, to entrust it to him and say, Lord, this is yours. This is yours. This is not mine. This is yours, God, and I'm giving it to you. I'm committing it to you, and I'm trusting you, Lord. And how are we called to give it to him? In doing good. In doing the will of God. Giving it to God fully surrendered. Not living however we want, not living to do the things we want to do, but living to please God, to glorify Him, and to do His will for our lives. But again, all of these things, all of these applications, they mean nothing to us if we're not first having a personal relationship with Jesus. 
right? We, we can read and we can be reminded. Be watchful in your prayers. Be careful with what's coming out of your mouth. Rejoice in your trials. But if we don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, these things are nothing. They're meaningless. And so it starts with our hearts. It starts with getting right with God each and every day in his word and through prayer. When we commit our lives to him, we're never going to suffer lack, ever. And this is what Peter was reminding this church, despite everything that they were going through and all of the persecution and hardships that were about to come on the church. So let me conclude with this. We'll wrap up here. I'll conclude with this. We went over verses 7 through 19, and we talked about how we're to conduct ourselves or to live as Christians. And again, Peter was writing this to the church who was undergoing some of the worst persecution in history, and they were about to even go through worse persecution. And Peter reminded them that they need to live every day as if Jesus were coming back, as if he were returning. They were told how to respond by all the craziness and all the chaos going on around them in the world. They were to respond by trusting God, loving him, being serious in their faith, being watchful in their faith, and committing their souls to the Lord in everything that they say and everything that they do. Now is the time to wake up. Now is the time to be sober-minded. Now is the time to be temperate and to take our faith in Jesus seriously because it's not a job, it's not a hobby, it's a lifestyle. And we need to start living it like a lifestyle. The things that come out of our mouths need to glorify God, need to edify His church. Rejoicing in our trials, loving each other as the body of Christ. Because if we can't love each other as Christians, we're not going to be able to love those who wrong us, those who don't know Christ. It starts right here. So many times we want to see revival. We want to see these amazing things happen, but we forget revival starts in the church. Revival starts in our hearts. And if our hearts aren't right and aren't seeking the Lord, and if the church is not seeking God, then we're going to be blind to a revival happening outside of this church. God doesn't need us. He can do whatever he pleases. He doesn't need the church to bring revival, but we're going to be blind to it if we don't get our hearts right with the Lord. So I encourage each one of us, let's live in the hope of Christ. Let's live as if Jesus were returning, as if he were coming back, as if this were our last day on this earth to take our calling seriously. Just as we studied John the Baptist last week, he was a man who took his calling seriously. He didn't play around. He didn't sugarcoat the gospel. He gave the word God gave him to do, and he lived because he had hope in Christ. And we have the same hope. So let's pray, and then we'll continue to worship. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, so much for your word, God. We thank you for who you are, and we thank you, God, that you have saved us. Lord, that you would love us enough to send your only son to take our place on the cross. Father, we thank you. We rejoice, God. We give you glory. God, I just pray, Lord, as we read these verses, and as we just read through your entire word, God, that you would just help us to obey you. Help us to be doers of your word and not hearers only. Help us, Lord, to just live lives that glorify you, that we would be the church you've called us to be. We would be the Christians you've called us to be, that we would go out with the hope of Christ to this world around us. God, just thank you for this time. Thank you for our time to study your word. I pray you continue to bless us as we worship, and that you continue to be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.